Wednesday night we looked at um, the final chapter of Proverbs, which uh, focuses on uh, a large part of it on the virtuous wife, the virtuous woman, and sort of the, an idealized type in a way about defining, describing lots of different characteristics of a, a godly woman, uh, one who in many ways is industrious, was um, contributing to not only the life of the home, but also to the wider community that was generous, that was forward-thinking, all of these sorts of things. We noted at the time that um, the Bible was often charged with demeaning women or presenting women in a poor light, um, but that that's not the case at all, that there are different roles for men and women to play, and in many ways it's um, um, men's responsibility to you know, discharge um, their roles you know, with um, humility and with um, in, in keeping and making sure that women are able to do their roles as best as possible. That's often um, the actual problem. Um, but here we have, um, if you like, uh, a real-life example of um, a, a, a virtuous woman, a, a godly woman. We don't know an awful lot about um, this lady called Deborah, um, but we do know that she comes into the history of Israel in this period that we know as the Judges, the period that um, precedes the time of the kings, and that it was a, a cyclical period that we started with Othniel as the first judge, and then Edward, the second judge, led the people in driving out their enemies. And then when Edward died, um, the people began to turn away from God. And we'll revisit this at the end, but we know that there's these seven cycles of um, turning back to God through the righteous judgment of you know, um, one given that authority by God, and then they start to turn away, turn towards idolatry, start to indulge in the sin and vices of the nations around about them, they're taken into captivity, or they experience periods of great destitution, um, warfare, and then they turn back towards God, all of a sudden. They require this pain and hardship to remember. And so then they come back and unfortunately um, this cycle becomes endemic. So we um, see Deborah as the, the third of these judges. Um, the Lord had allowed Israel's enemy, Jabin, to defeat Israel at this time and to rule over them. Uh, his home was at Hazar, and that was north of the Sea of, of Galilee. And the captain of his army was Sisera, and Sisera lived at Harasheth. We'll be an exam on this afterwards to make sure we're getting the spelling correct. Um, Harasheth is on the Kishan River, about 35 miles away to the southwest. Basically, there's Israel, and then pretty close by, there's an enemy. There's a, a neighboring nation that is not a friendly nation. God has allowed them at this point in time, because of Israel's disobedience, because of their negligence, um, has allowed um, 
Jabin and his um, sister are the captain of his army to kind of dominate their land. It seems that Jabin's way of oppressing the people was to take most of their crops and their sheep and their cattle, the way of the Serbian dominance. And then Jabin's iron chariots um, were pulled by swift horses. And if you have a technological advantage in warfare, um, you tend to be victorious. And so because of their iron chariots, they could simply overrun anybody who tried to stop them. Um, and the people were suffering because of this, and so they turned to the Lord, prayed to God for help. And so, true to this cycle, um, God sent them uh, a judge. They had a judge um, to save, and um, she comes to the fore, and that's the prophetess Deborah. Um, so, Judges 4 and 5 basically describe this period. Um, Deborah is the only judge described as a prophet. One can be a prophet without being a judge. Gideon is probably the most famous of the judges. Um, he was certainly not necessarily um, one all a, a prophet, you know, a fourth teller, an oracle of, of God. Uh, he was appointed simply for the purpose of that. Whereas Deborah was already um, acting uh, in this role or, or these roles. Um, prophetesses are uh, less common, but certainly Deborah isn't unique, um, being a woman prophet uh, of God. God chooses um, lots of people in lots of ways to convey his messages. Um, we have Miriam in Exodus 15, 20, Holder, 1 Kings 22, 14, Noah, Nehemiah 6, 14, and Anna in Luke 2, 36. So the idea of prophet being a male-only domain uh, is not true at all. And so um, Deborah was acting as a judge um, through you know, God's wisdom, through God's inspiration. Um, we obviously don't know exactly the, the mechanism of these things, but clearly this was um, underway. And so the people, it would seem, would come to her. And perhaps, you know, as Solomon did later on, she was settling quarrels, settling disputes, you know, perhaps um, discerning, you know, obviously, the law being such an important part um, of Israel's sort of cultural, secular life, not even secular life, but, you know, their community life as well as their religious life. And so perhaps was um, helping to expose or um, explain some of these things. And it says there quite nicely that she held court under a palm tree. So I'm not sure if Aaron gets to go to court um, or all students get to go to courts under palm trees, perhaps in the tropics or some of the more remote areas of the South Pacific. Um, but it's a, a nice kind of image. And so through Deborah, um, God decides the time for um, Jabin has come. And so um, Deborah tells Barak that he is to gather and lead an army to Mount Tabor. Um, so this was near the home of Jabin's captain, Sisera. So basically they're pulling the army together and they're going to push them back out of their lands. 
Um, God promised that Sisera, uh, again, we are summarizing basically chapter 4 as we go through the most welcome to, to read along effectively. Um, God promises that Sisera would come to fight, but that Barak would win. So you've got God's guarantee here. Um, nevertheless, Barak hesitates. Um, he says, okay, yeah, if you come along, then I'll trust it. Then I'll believe it. And I want you to be there. Um, it's similar in a way to, to Gideon and his hesitation despite God declaring that I'll make you victorious in death. And I mean, at one level we can understand the reluctance. It's a bit like the apostles and condemning them for not understanding all that Jesus was telling them at the time. I mean, it's very difficult in the moment sometimes to understand these things and it would be a very human reaction to say, just go on and take 10,000 of your finest fighters and, and wage war against someone who's dominating your land, who has dominated your land, who has iron chariots, um, go on and kick them out and you know, you'll do it, you'll be fine. I mean, you know, faith says, yeah, we should be able to do this. Kind of experience and human frailty says, um, okay. And so, um, yeah, for whatever reason, Barak, and you know, maybe he wants to make sure that Deborah's there to relay further instructions from God, um, whatever it, it might be. Um, Maybe it's a moral boost if you've got judge, God's judge you know, right down the front lines, then maybe that's a, a further assurance for him. Who knows? Whatever his reasons, um, he agreed only if Deborah would accompany him, and Deborah agreed to go along. But she makes this kind of um, point. She says, Yeah, you'll lead people into battle, but it's a woman who's going to get the credit, and particularly get the credit killing Sisera. And so I don't know whether that was kind of a bit of a, a shaming jab at him or whether this was just a statement of fact, which it proves to be. Uh, I suspect there's a little of, you know, your hesitation isn't really the best of the leadership that it could be. You know, there could be greater trust. You know, maybe that's speculation, but certainly there is that hesitation there and that hesitation isn't in that Deborah and that agrees to go to the front line. I think she is fully convinced um, of victory, providing that they go about things in a godly way. And so they're told to draw the army from Zebulun and Naphtali, these obviously tribes of Israel. And these were the tribes of Israel that were living in the region that was near um, Jabin and Sisera, the enemies. And so it's probably most likely that they suffered most from the oppression uh, and so that's where you know, the army was raised from sort of they had the most to fight for perhaps the, um, you know, the motivation the justification these sorts of things so at the time so the Canaanites had this technological advantage over the Israelites with their iron chariots, they could control the plains. And so when Sisera heard about the Israelite army, he assembled his chariots and moved up the narrow plain beside the Kishon River to meet the opposition. So you'd have to think, when Sisera 
side of things that, okay, you know, they're coming up, but in previous experience, we have been victorious. Um, there's a pretty good chance that, you know, we can win this again. And so um, the prophetess Deborah promises victory again, and Barak leads his troops down from Mount Tabor. And then if you read through chapter 5, um, which is referred to as the Song of Deborah and Barak, um, it explains how the Lord effectively defeats Sisera. So he brings a big rain, and so of course heavy iron chariots are great across you know, hard terra firma, but when it's boggy, um, they ain't going far. And so this effectively even outs the advantage. And again, that's sort of a bit difficult to say about, you know, the technical aspects of the warfare when God has said, you know, they're going to be given victory, but um, you know, nevertheless, God enables these things, allows these things to happen, and it's often the case that you know, we're always looking for miracles, and people are always sort of looking for the miraculous from God, and, and this type of things, but God doesn't always work that way, doesn't always need to work that way. People are always looking for the miraculous. I think, again, it's not our place to look necessarily for all the ways in which God works because they're mysterious at times. And it's a fool's error to say, oh, that's God working, or that's God working. We just have to trust these things. And you know, Deborah and Barak have been told that God would ensure the victory, um, that it was time for them, that he had heard Israel's prayers. And so this is how it plays out. And so Cicero, like a good valiant warrior, sees defeat imminent, and so leaves his chariot and runs away on foot. Uh, not a great look, is it? The enemy troops fled back down the valley toward Harasheth, but Barak's men caught them and destroyed them before they got inside the city's walls. And so God confirming his word, Israel victorious. Sisera runs in a panic, trying to find refuge. If you're the leader of the army, you do not want to be caught by the enemy. Um, there have been some friendly relations with the family of Jael, so he made his way to her tent. Um, this woman invited Sisera into her tent and told him to go to sleep. Um, she gave him a, a warm cover. When he asked for water, um, she gave him milk instead. And then one of those famous you know, graphic violent accounts, an MA warning and this for the kids that um, he goes to sleep soundly and then during the night um, she drives a tank peg through his temple into his skull and kills him. And remember the promise that a woman would kill Sisera, but even though Barak would lead the army, that it would be a woman that would sort of, you know, take this symbolic victory. And in many ways, I think Deborah's faithfulness and Deborah's confidence in God, uh, allied with Jael's um, violent flourish, I think really does um, emphasize this point that God works with those who are faithful with, you know, irrespective of and all of these sorts of things. And so after the rest of Sisera's army was defeated, Jael's heroism was celebrated in song, meaning that she received the credit. 
So, what lessons for us? What do we want to take from this? Well, there's three lessons that I think we can learn um, from here a little bit. We can draw. The first of those, so particularly for Sam and for Adrian and for Aaron and for Micah, is that when camping, if any woman offers you a glass of milk, beware, okay? Uh, maybe not sleep so soundly, and uh, I suspect you'll be fine, but you know, just, um, we have examples here. In all seriousness, as with Wednesday night's class, um, it's important that we not demean the role of women. Um, we don't demean women. They have, you know, and again, sort of even dividing the genders at times. You know, God dissolves a lot of those boundaries when He says that we are all one in Christ. And we have different roles, different functions within the church, different functions at times within um, society. In many societies, those differences have kind of been distorted and used to really treat women in a very poor way, and I think that is in no way, and oftentimes justified on religious grounds. And I think God does not support that in any way, shape, or form. And we do well um, not to you know, abuse the roles of leadership or followership that any of us are given, but rather all of them are designed to work in a way that is you know, most um, effective and to, to really bring the best out of everyone. So the third and final point that I wanted to bring out is um, this cycle that we talked about at the start. There's a lot of sad you know, verses in the Bible. You see Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem, wishing that he could gather them together as chicks that they would not. It's this really you know, emotive moment. You see Jesus weeping over um, the death of Lazarus. Again, Jesus as a man, Jesus as a human, Jesus feeling these things. Jesus really full of emotion. You see um, David lamenting the, the death of his son. And again, really full of um, great um, emotion. Um, I think Judges 5.1 and Judges 6.1 fall into this category. Uh, sorry, Judges 4.1 and Judges 6.1. So Judges 4.1 says, When Ehud was dead, Ehud being the second judge, says the children of Israel again to evil in the sight of the Lord. And then in Judges 5, the very last verse of Judges 5, it says, the land had rest for 40 years. So they threw Barak and Deborah, they you know, kicked them out. 40 years, okay, we get it, trust in God. You know, follow God's commands. 6-1, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. 40 years, basically one generation, and they lose it. They forget again. And again, I'm sure you're familiar with the history of Israel, but this is a, um, a history that repeats and that um, despite everything that was 
built in, despite all of the feasts that were designed to remind them, despite the teachings and the Levitical priests whose sole role was to keep um, everybody on the straight and narrow and to keep people mindful of the exodus, to keep people mindful of all that God had done and how he had seen them through the wilderness and how he had given them this land that they now um, inhabited and were um, fruitful in and were successful in. Despite all of this, they continue to end up in chapter 4, verse 1. They continue to end up in chapter 6 and verse 1. And so I think this is a really serious warning for us. This isn't bad Israel. This is bad humans. This is a problem of humankind. History hasn't solved the problem of repetitive failure, of repetitive sin. Christ, Paul reminds us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's a future statement as well as a past statement. We're kind of designed you know, not to fail, but we're designed to have um, choice and to be accountable for our choices. And we fall in those and we sin. And so if we want to measure the of the church. We can count numbers every Sunday and we can do this and we can do that, but I think the true success of a church is measured across generations. And this was 40 years and they're failing again. And so I think we need to be really mindful of the church um, as a, a long-form institution, as a role to be um, thinking about how can we ensure that the next generation knows the right thing, knows what the church needs to do, is taught how to lead and how to hold fast and how to understand the word. And is shown examples, not just taught in the Bible class, but is seen um, and is shown leadership and is shown servanthood and is shown humility and is shown the extra mile and is shown um, how to resist sin and is shown how to work through problems and whatever it might be and whatever it was within Israel they were unable to sustain these things and that's why ultimately they you know, go off into um, great apostasy and therefore great humiliation. And you know, Jeremiah's laments you know, sit alongside these laments in terms of Israel's stubbornness, humankind's stubbornness, humankind's unwillingness to listen to God, to turn back, to repent. And so we need to play the long game. We need to be concerned about the future of the church, the of um, those who will hear the message that the light shining into the community and we have to find ways to future proof it. You know, we can be so focused on the present and of course you know, that's how we're built and that's all we have and that's necessary but I just think we need to be mindful that these cycles can you know, 
get in there and they can become quite difficult to overcome. And so whatever measures that we have for our individual Christian lives and for the life of the church, I think the ability to ensure successive generations understand what God wants and adheres to that is a very important measure.